I wanted to tell a complete story. And uh, sometimes it felt like if you took a shot and you edited the shot, that you were just getting one small slice of, of life at that point or what you were seeing. And in one of the projects that's still on the This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are talking with Sue Gans. Sue is an absolutely mesmerizing photographer, uh, working mostly in street and documentary, but with a lot more complexity um, and a lot more nuance than a lot of people working in this field. Originally from the East Coast, Sue spent most of her life out in the Seattle area. She's now back in Virginia and just tearing up. Uh, the Frames Facebook page and other places with absolutely stunning work. Susan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and thank you very much for this opportunity. Oh, th- this is all my pleasure. I, you know, as you know, my heart really is first with street photography, with black and white, uh, with documentary stuff. And so I'm really excited about what's going to come up in this conversation. But you ha- you have a really interesting trajectory to get to where you are now. You have a strong background in printmaking. So for, for the people that don't know you and, and, and maybe have not had a chance to look at your work all that much, bring us up to speed. How, how did you get into photography? How did you get into printmaking? And, and why did photography become, at least in the last few years, you know, the predominant form for your artistic work? Well, I started out actually majoring in humanities political science in college, but I mm-hmm. paid for most of my own college. So it took seven years to get my BA. I was just in and out taking classes. And then I started at Bard College in Annandale and Hudson, New York, for my first year. And I minored in art. And I grew up in a household with a mother who was very involved in selling antiques and very knowledgeable about about antiques and early American work. So I was dragged to uh, thrift shops, antique shops, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, you know, didn't appreciate it so much when I was younger because there were other things that I had wanted to do, but that was the way it was. And in later life, she saved me when I was in graduate school by coming up to New York. I went to NYU for graduate school because I started a job on weekends uh, working in an antique shop and I wasn't very good at selling. So she came up (laughs) and in matter of hours, she sold enough at that shop so that I could pay my tuition for the next semester ahead of you. <laughs> Go mom. I love yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was very, very happy. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was used to being around the arts, and we also uh, did a lot of theater, and there was a lot of music in the house. I have an, a brother who's two years older who was a jazz musician for a long time. And this was in between his other career working in business. 
but he was very good at it. And we went to a lot of clubs and we did, uh, went to a lot of concerts in Washington, D.C. And I continued that throughout my life. So, you know, it all sort of fell together. But also growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, you are absolutely involved with politics, whether you want to be or not. Right. Because it's, it, I mean, it is 24-7. It's gotten worse, right. I've noticed, since I've been back. There's just no way of getting getting away from what's going on. I'm five miles from the White House where I live. Mm-hmm. So my first year at college at Bard, we had work terms, and I had an internship with Senator Paul Douglas, who was a senator from Illinois at the time. And it was 1960, and I had the pleasure and opportunity to go to one of the inaugural balls for President Kennedy. Oh, my you know, and so, you know, I always thought that this would be my career, but I wanted to be involved with the arts and stay involved. And I had a habit throughout elementary school, all the way through high school, of drawing a lot and got in trouble a lot for it. <laughs> because I was looking out the windows or, you know, just doodling or drawing or whatever, and not necessarily listening to the teacher. You know, so I kept that going, and I minored in um, in studio arts that first year at Bard. Bard was mm-hmm. set up in such a way that you had required class called Common Course, which integrated arts and science and math and uh, history. And then you could take individual classes, and so I did that. I did. That's where I started printmaking, actually. What was the printmaking just accidental or was that an outgrowth of your interest in drawing or was it, was it serendipity or did you choose it? Um, I chose it because I didn't think that I would like painting and there was, <laughs> there was no photography. The options were very few and, um, and I liked working with my hands and I liked mm-hmm. detail and I have a lot of patience. So, oh my, yep. So it worked, and I started with traditional etching and then did a lot of dry point uh, because I could do it anywhere. And, you know, just really enjoyed the process for a long time. And when I went to NYU for graduate school, I, I minored I had, in printmaking. I had to do one studio project and then it was, um, I got a degree in art education because teaching satisfied the family because yep. women either became librarians or teachers. And then, you know, I satisfied myself by doing the printmaking. And NYU had a very good department. There was still no photography at that point. This was in 1970. Mm-hmm. And there was, an, I graduated from the University of Maryland undergraduate school. I was there for two years, and, and I just flipped my major. I had completed the humanities political science part of it, and so I had to declare a major there, and I declared studio arts, and they had no photography there. Right. Was, was it just the, 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 the intricacy, the patience that's required, and, and the fine detail um, that was calling to you? What were some of your early prints of? 
Well, I did a lot of a lot of prints of people. I did abstract work. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of. I started the whole idea of series and composites at that point, and then I ended up doing a lot of photo etchings, and I um, managed to move on from doing photo etchings in the dark room, which you know was health in terms of health benefits wasn't great. <laughs> And moved on and started doing solar plates. And solar plate you can develop with water. It's, you know, you you make a digital screen and you're working on a plate which has an emulsion on copper, on steel. Right. So you can, you're basically doing a photographic process and transferring it onto a plate. But it allows you to do lots of layers and different colors and that that kind of thing. And to work, if you can afford it, to work large because the solar plates are very expensive. But there are ways around it. If you get uh, four smaller plates, you can get one large print. But, you know, the, the, the layering and uh, those kind of elements are very present in your photography. What was the early attraction there? What, what about that kind of, uh, you know, everything from double exposure to just, Differing layers, different textures, different you know content. What was what was calling to you there? I uh, I wanted to tell a complete story, and uh, sometimes it felt like if you took a shot and you edited it, the shot that you were just getting one small slice of of life at that point mm-hmm. or what you were seeing. And in one of the projects that's still on the website called Urban. Most of the shots were, you know, two shots together, and and many of them I took a photograph on one side of the street or road and then turned around and took the photograph where I was standing because I felt I gave a wider view of what was there. And I was most of that was documentary photography about what was going on in Seattle or in Tacoma, Washington, what it looked like. And it it was a time of tremendous development or redevelopment in the city. And I concentrated on both what was being lost and what was being built at the same time. And, you know, it became a kind of judgment of, you know, where was the best image or what was the building that really attracted me? Was it the historical you know, keeping history and somehow blending history with contemporary architecture. So to me, it's it's about completing a story. I also did um, a show where I I wrote haiku for most of the images. And, and that to me was another way of, you know, it was telling something about who I was and what I saw at the time and how I felt about it. You know, so you're bringing up all sorts of things that I want to talk to you about and ask you about. Um, and yeah, I want to talk about you know, the relationship between um, calling your work documentary and yet having such a strong fine art element in it. But before before we get there, a lot of what you're talking about comes back to this notion of narrative, of storytelling. Tell me how you explain the, the narrative potential of photography um, and, and how that informs your work. Well, to me, it's every time I photograph something, it's 
it is a story. It's a story mm-hmm. of that moment. It's a story of a feeling. It's a story of being present in a place or in a group of people. This morning, I was listening to uh, B.D. Collins' um, podcast with you, and because he he has that series photographing people on buses or right, um, and and I enjoyed that, and I have several photographs that I've done on the subways in New York. Uh, and I did a series in Seattle on the bus that I commuted on to work. And, you know, every day there was something different. It was, and it was personal and it was reality, but it was my reality and, you know, an interpretation of the reality that I saw. I, the bus that I rode to work happened to be considered the second worst ride in Seattle. It was rough. <laughs> it was very, mm-hmm. very rough. So I changed my tools from carrying a camera, which I didn't want stolen. And that's when I, when iPhones finally got good enough to, to use for taking photographs. I started using that because I could get away with it and, um, and come home with it. But the idea is to be present for me. And I felt that you had that opportunity taking a photograph and it's much more in the realm of a moment or a real moment than when you're doing a print and you begin interpreting and changing color and, you know, where you place certain parts of your image and that's a different kind of narrative, different kind of story that's more dreamlike in a way. But when, when you start compositing, when you start layering, aren't you doing essentially the same thing? You're interpreting and you're adding other elements that might make the emotion more true, but make the actual image more dreamlike? Yes, yes. And and I still I go back to that sometimes because I see that possibility in a group of images if I'm in a place and I take a series of images at a time and I go back and I look at them and sometimes I feel like there's there's another story, an underlying story that could be told if I layer them and I put them into a composite. And sometimes it's just a straight photograph can do that. The night photography for me does that, using the light. Oh, that, that, that is a cool idea. Um, is, is light a narrative tool? Yes, absolutely. T- give me an example. Well, in, in the current photographs that I took, it happened to be just a gorgeous night, you know, looking at the Potomac River and looking mm-hmm. across at Maryland. I was at a point where you can see Maryland, D.C. and stand in Virginia. It was just the shimmering light of the buildings and, you know, just flowing across the river. And to me, that was like being in a dream, you know, of of thinking about even walking on water, walking to the other side and, you know, seeing shapes that were edited by the light, you know, knowing what's across because I know what's across in Maryland at that mm-hmm. point. But, you know, just seeing the shapes. And it was just, to me, a really beautiful scene. Yeah, Susan, you've got me really thinking about narrative and and photographer here. And in your own artist statement, 
um, talking about your Onlooker project. You say the Onlooker project is introspective and concentrates on emotions often unseen by others and encapsulates, encapsulates a backstory about a loner, dreamer, thinker, listener, protester, or witness while searching for the common threads that bind us in our everyday existence one day at a time. That sounds very much like there's a narrator, there's a protagonist to your work. Mm-hmm. Would that be that be a way to understand what I'm looking at? Yes. Yes. So how are these autobiographical? How how are these how are you narrating a still image? Well, it's it's from my own experience. Um uh, I think I spent a lot of time in those particular roles. I was a protester during the mm-hmm. 60s and uh wore through a lot of shoe leather in Washington <laughs> and New York <laughs> and, and marched in, Mar- in, in Seattle also. And I've been a loner. I'm very, I, I travel alone or in very small groups, and that's my choice. And, and I spend a lot of time just thinking about images and, and looking at images I worked in the arts for a long time before um, I changed into a job in uh, at the prosecutor's office in Seattle. And I did that in part on the advice of someone who had an English degree, master's in, from Columbia University, who was on the board of a, the institution I was working at at the time, who said, you'll never make money in the arts, you know, go be a paralegal, and then you'll have time <laughs> to do your art, which was true. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things of working, I, you know, I worked in family law. You cannot photograph, you cannot divulge anything that goes on right. in any of the cases. So I would go out at lunchtime and carry the camera to work every day and went out at lunch and photographed. And it was a way of really decompressing from the intensity of the work and also, you know, thinking about things and thinking about issues and thinking about just kind of a worldview, which was, you know, very particular in the work. And so I went out and searched and, and I always like photographing on my own. I just like, Mm -hmm. it just feels right. You know, you, you've worked for um, a law practice. You've also worked for social work agencies, which have the same privacy you know, issues. So I'm, I'm wondering if that doesn't build up a, a, this huge desire to tell a story that you can't tell. So you wind up finding other ways to express those same emotions. It does, you know, and it becomes kind of my view, my, my story, my experience of having been in those environments and dealing with those issues. I also grew up in a single-family household, and so some of those issues in family law were ones that I knew personally and grew up with. So, you know, it, it was taking all of that information, all of those feelings, and putting it into certain projects. And the Onlooker project was very much about that, you know, in noticing things. I, you know, some of the images I took on the bus coming home during marches when downtown Seattle was just absolutely shut down because you couldn't get through the streets. Right. And some of them, I, I don't, I can't remember whether I have images from 
one of the first big walks for uh, immigrant workers in Seattle. And I walked with them. I was working in the courthouse and I walked with them for about a mile and a half up the main street where the courthouse is, you know, just joining the march and looking at the placards and talking to people and trying mm-hmm. not to get arrested because, <laughs> because there was some of that going on too. Oh yeah. But I, I had, I had my work badge on me, but there you go. There you go. Said, hey, <laughs> you, know. so, so you and I are both on the far side, on the far side of, 40, 50, yeah. 60. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I can't wait to, you know, but I, I was, again, reading in, in, you know, your online stuff, um, when you talk about one of my favorite projects of yours, um, Memory and Identity, you say it's personal. And th- this, this is a great portfolio you've got out there. But then you say these images deal with different moments of life, including the realization that aging is no longer a myth and comes with perils and joys. Talk to me about this collection. Talk to me about when you realized, hey, I got something that all goes together here. And then talk to me about the intent of, of creating new work for that project. Well, I think I think that, you know, that project started actually out of a class I took at the Photographic Center Northwest with a photographer named Molly Landis, who was wonderful. And it was when the show L came from France and was at the Seattle Art Museum. And the whole show was really organized for women photographers, although we had one guy in the class and he did some very interesting things, you know, sitting around with all the women. And we Mm -hmm. went to the museum. We spent a lot of time looking at the collection. And then we went to the Henry Art Gallery at the University of Washington and had the opportunity to look through their drawers, you know, in the archive at work. And so each one of us took a project, started a project that was uh, about our own experience. And this was the project that I started at that time because I was really kind of cut off from the idea of doing anything that had to do with my own life. And so this kind of opened a door to allow me in to think about certain things. Things were, early life was fairly difficult. So this gave me an opportunity to, you know, put out some images myself and sort of sense a mood piece, but also, you know, deal with my getting older because when I started this, I was not young. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Right. In, in throughout this, not th- not in every image, obviously, but in many of the images, your face is obscured by a mask or by some other element. A lot of these are multiple images, you know, all put together, not exactly diptychs or, or that kind of stuff, but, you know, 
parallel images, there's a real barrier between sort of the viewer and your identity in a lot of these images. Did that just feel right at the beginning or was that an an aesthetic intent? No, it just felt right. I wasn't ready to, you know, just sort of be in, in the picture. I've always felt like I've had to live behind some kind of mask and uh, because of a diff- just a lot of difficult stuff that went on. Yeah. Um, and, but the, the, the parallels that you've got in here are just striking. I mean, just, just really dead on in terms of provoking a response from me. Do you look at them and say, yeah, you know, th- there's something more honest than I've got words for here? I mean, I, I look at them and I understand them and I feel close to most of those images. I mean, I, there's, you know, more of an underlying story that I know about mm-hmm. that I'm not willing to divulge beyond that. And I leave it up to people to interpret for themselves. I think that the most direct images, I think I put one in there of myself and my mother and I did it, I put it together. Uh, the image of myself was taken while I was waiting for my brother's wedding to start, which I was waiting four hours waiting around for this to start. And, <laughs> uh, and my mother, the, the image of my mother was when she was pregnant with me. And one of the things that I noticed was the body language that we both had of the way we had our arms folded. Oh, that, that is, that's an absolutely fantastic image. It's got all sorts of glamour to it at one level and poignancy at another. Tell me, tell me what it was like to put your image there in front of your mom's. I just, I, I felt like it would work, that it would be a very strong statement and, we had uh, sometimes a tempestuous relationship. Difficult <laughs> mother daughters, or um, you know, and she she was a, a very very smart person and very um, very cultivated. But she grew up in very poor circumstances, uh, a child of um, immigrant parents. Uh, mm-hmm. They came, they actually were in New York for a vacation, and her father got sick. And so they stayed. And, Aww. you know, it was it was just a, a kind of interesting childhood that she had. And, you know, very typical of immigrant families who came during the um, early part of the 1900. She was born in 1912. And her her father died young, and she ended up supporting her mother, going out to work when she was very young. But she went to Hunter. She was very smart, and she went to Hunter College in New York when she was 15. And she got herself out of that world, and um, she had a sense of glamour about her that she always pursued. And, yep. you know, so... The the photographs are just wonderful. The photographs that I have, all of those were taken during the late 30s or early 40s. I was born in 42, so uh, she was pregnant with me at the time. 
And I just felt that it was a kind of interesting pairing, you know, because I it, the, I was 26 in the picture, and that was okay. the closest that I could find to uh, the two of us in terms of age. I, you know, I, I really am compelled by this notion of layering and um, compositing in other instances because of the way it always provokes um, a narrative space. So not only do we get to ask what's going on emotionally, aesthetically, whatever, in the individual images, their relationship becomes this whole other area of inquiry that as a viewer, I, I just find absolutely um, provocative and, and compelling because it invites me in emotionally to figure out what's what's going on here can fine art still be called documentary uh yeah i think i i think that you can do a a project which is very specific to an idea or you can visit an idea and it's still the way it's created and printed can be fine art oh very cool uh, tell me the story of w- one other of your collections that I love uh, simply because I've been, not simply, but um, first because I've been there. And this is your portfolio about Union Street, which you call Unfolding, a conversation about Union Street. So tell me, I mean, let, let's unpack the whole title there. Tell me about Union Street, why that caused you. Why is this collection a conversation? And why did you choose Unfolding? Well, it's a conversation because I did it with a very good friend who is, um, he's a painter, essentially, and a landscape architect. And uh, we have done four exhibitions together. And so we come from different points of view. And Union Street is a street that goes from one body of water in Seattle from uh, Puget Sound, Elliott Bay, Mm -hmm. all the way over to Lake Washington. And so David Trailer and I walked that walk, which is many, was several miles. And what we were trying to do was establish a show which was about a sense of place because you would change neighborhoods every couple of blocks maybe every five, every sometimes 10 blocks, you would go through different neighborhoods, which really spoke to the demographics in the city of Seattle. You went from downtown and large businesses uh, into small neighborhoods and individual businesses to residential areas to very poor areas and ended up in an area called Madrona, which is quite beautiful. And it's on Lake Washington, and it's upper middle class and uh, to quite wealthy. And we wanted to get a feeling for this area. And it was at a time when there was a lot of change, and Amazon was starting its major growth in the city. The city was changing from being um, a kind of Boeing you know, oriented city in terms of economics to um, becoming a tech city. And so you had neighborhoods that were being torn down, neighborhoods that were being refurbished, prices were changing. It was that period. So we were interested in, we decided that we would choose one street that crossed the city and had enough 
interest in it and and enough uh, variety uh, to do a show. And what David he built uh, a book, a wooden book, and which we posted some of his drawings and my photographs on, and it stretched about twelve feet across the wall. And it was a book that you could fold. And mm-hmm. so um, we put that up. And then I did large photo etchings and large prints. I did 17 by 22 wow. uh, prints. And some of them were composites where I took, you know, just sort of snippets of different areas and put them together. And this was the second time that we had done it and we always chose titles that were kind of weird the first show we did was called bowl of water and the (laughs) premise for that was that you could see everything you needed to see in the reflection of of a bowl of water in the right light Mm -hmm. you know and and so the postcard was just a bowl which david made and you know filled with water you know, in, in both of these, I, I'm just absolutely impressed um, with, with the way you're taking this sort of a static universe and, and making it dynamic or giving it a filter that's going to be unusual. With with the unfolding project, you know, I, I'm just uh, amazed at this notion of we're going to do the whole street. Basically, we're going to photograph a transition, not you know, not the deep dive, which is you know equally interesting, but of, of a single block or a single you know home. But there's this notion of change, of, of narrative. When you, when you guys are working on a project, how much of the presentation is already in your head? Um, I think we talk about the presentation a lot before we actually start. And Before you, uh, before you start shooting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because we have a sense of each other. We really have worked together uh, for so long. Um, that we know what the other is, you know, kind of hinting at. I mean, I know David's work very well. He knows my work. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time just walking and talking and looking. And that, you know, in that process, you get an idea of how you want to approach this. And I worked in that area. I worked near Union Street. So I was in that area constantly. And David is, he was um, a runner and a walker. And he, we lived like six blocks apart. And so he would walk downtown. He would walk seven miles, you know. So, and he really had a sense of the city from that. He would take his dogs and walk. And I took the bus to work, but I would walk my lunch hours. We'd just go out and walk and photograph. And so we came with different ideas for this. And then we walked Union Street together. We did it, I think, four complete times we walked back and forth. Wow. Very fit in those days. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the health benefits of being a photographer. There's a whole new series. It's great. Um, (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Unless you're a studio photographer. And then then, then you've got a a whole set set of other issues. That's Um, right. Susan, what are you working on now? Right now, I have been working just with my iPhone. I had a lot of stuff in storage, moved, sold a house, moved from a house uh, into this condo, into Alexandria. still have stuff in front of mine, just sent a package 
today at the last round of stuff. The storage unit, unfortunately, was broken into. A lot of stuff was taken, camera equipment, all of that. The other, the other aspect to using the phone a lot was Seattle was, you know, Seattle was really like most of the large cities, um, hurt by the pandemic in economic ways. And Mm -hmm. there are many problems. And so it really didn't, it became unsafe to walk around with cameras. You know, mm-hmm. particularly since I was on my own. When I was younger, I could run. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> run and hide. But as I've gotten older, this this is not in the wheelhouse. <laughs> so, no. you know, I've, I've learned to, to use, I have an iPhone 12, one of the pro uh, cameras, mm-hmm. large ones. And so I've learned to use this, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, just experimenting. And so I use this, and I also have a little Sony RX100, the varied one. That it, I guess it was the five or six, but I've used that because it's small, and you can, right. you know, use it in ways. But to carry around the larger cameras, I had were Nikon's and the Olympus and all of that, and you know, I couldn't carry those around anyway. And Alexandria is it's a tourist city. You know, just lots of people, and there are lots of issues. I mean, even in a city this size, there is fallout from the pandemic, and you don't see too many people walking around. Some of the some of the people who get off the um, you know water taxis coming in from D.C. or Maryland will carry all of their gear, you know, yeah. laden down the tourists with all their fancy cameras. But is is there a certain subject that you're chasing these days? Well, there are a couple of subjects. One, the the I have missed the water in the mountains coming back here. You know, mm-hmm. I spent over thirty years living in a city that was with just a beautiful landscape, beautiful vistas, and it's Alexandria is very flat. The Potomac <laughs> is very flat. <laughs> But mm-hmm. the Potomac is interesting as um, a working river. I mean, the, the number of boats that come as, you know, water taxis and ferries and, you know, just what's going on on the river. And it's all fronted by city parks. So you can walk the length of North Old Town to out to where you're kind of on your way to looking at eventually the Chesapeake Bay and, you know, just see so much. And you, and you're also aware that you're standing in a metropolitan area that includes Washington, DC and Maryland, that you're seeing all of this activity going around. So I find that really interesting. I find tourists interesting, why they come to the parks, what they're looking for you know, how they spend their time. There's a lot of music in Old Town. The uh, King Street has been dedicated um, for tourist land. And so there's small business and lots of eateries and outdoor eating. And the city has passed an ordinance to allow restaurants to have table space outside year round Mm -hmm. for a couple of the blocks. So 
they also invite musicians. They have a program where you have jazz, you know, and it's a great place if you're, you know, if you're on your own or you want to go to eat with friends. It's a really nice way to spend time. But I am very curious about the people who come and, you know, what goes on there that kind in that kind of street photography for that. But in the parks, I just find that the light and the clouds here are just beautiful, beautiful, very different light, very different look uh, because the topography is so different. So I've been fascinated with taking these night photographs. And, of course, the um, history and the beautiful, beautiful old townhouses and mansions and, you know, museums here are just wonderful to look at. And uh, including the very smallest houses, they have a couple of really tiny houses. You could put your arms out and you're reaching both walls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Susan, as as you know, I am a fan of your work. So much of it speaks to um, the way I see the world, too. And what you've done in terms of subject, in terms of stories, in terms of technique um, is, uh, to use a technical term, just as impressive as hell. Um, So thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you very much, Scott. And I really enjoy looking at your work, too. And I will <laughs> let you know if I drive through Fargo again. Well, yeah, standing offer to you and anybody else. If you're driving through Fargo, get in touch. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com. <laughs>